was. And the exciting thing that we see as we look at the scripture is that Jesus went there on purpose. You didn't just go to the shores of Gadara. You didn't just land in that place and just happen upon this guy. In fact, a lot of scholars believe the point behind the storm was an attempt to stop Jesus from getting across the Sea of Galilee to this guy. Because this guy, he represents the worst case of demon possession ever in the history of mankind. And the reason Mark tells us this story so just like we learned last time that Jesus was the Lord of the storm and at any point he can say, peace be still. He also wants us to understand that he can go into the life of the hardest hard case, the most whacked out, lost, crazy dude on the planet and help him to experience the love of God reaching out to him. That's what that story is all about. That's what he's describing for us. As we take a look at it, Scripture begins for us by describing uh, the guy, the condition of the man. Let's look at it. It says, And they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gadarenes. Now, this is not a city. If you, if you pay attention, we, there's a lot of critics and people, if you get a chance to read uh, commentaries or different things, they'll say, we don't know where this place is. Well, he told you where it was. He says, in the country of the Gadarenes. The Gadarenes, the country covered some 60 miles from the shore of Galilee inland. It was a wide expanse of land. It's not one specific dot on the land. There was a cemetery along the shores of this steep hill in a, in a place called uh, Kassara, which was in the country of the Gadarenes, which was in the area It'd be like me saying, yeah, we're, we're headed to Twin Falls County. You get? I could go to Filer, I could go to Castleford, I could go to Buell, I go wherever I want. I'm still in Twin Falls County, right? Same way in the Bible. People got to get themselves wrapped around axles over something, so they get themselves wrapped around the axle there. So they're going to the area, to that area of the Sea of Galilee. Jesus wants everyone to know where they're headed. And it says, and when he had come out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. We have these days coined the phrase demon possession. The Bible never uses those terms. The Bible says someone is demonized. Which can mean under the control of a demon. That's why we use the words demon possessed. But it's the same term used across the board in a lot of different ways. A lot of different ways. And prayerfully we'll see that as we take a look. But as soon as they get out of the boat, what happens? The crazy guy in the tombs comes running down. And I'm sure this was his M.O. Somebody shows up at the tombs. Crazy guy comes running out gets rid of them. You know, he don't want them around there. The Bible says that he immediately came to him. Immediately. But then something incredible occurs. Look what happens. It says... Then uh, as they came out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man of unclean spirit, 
who had his dwelling among the tombs, and no one could bind him, not even with chains, because he had often been bound with shackles and, and chains, and the chains had been pulled apart by him, and the shackles broken into pieces. Neither could anyone tame him. Always, day and night, he was in the mountains and in the tombs, crying out and cutting himself with stones. So we have a guy here who's a cutter. We have a guy here who's, who's calling out. And the scripture says he's calling out. All he can do is shriek. The word used for crying out is a scream. It's a, like a, a, a primordial scream. It's just sh- as loud as he can shout. Can you imagine the torment? The, the misery of soul this guy has, has been experiencing for years. Crying out in the tombs. And the only thing that anybody else could do for him was to come and wrap chains on him. And try to shackle him up. And that concept is so important for you to realize. That idea is summed up in one word. Religion. That's what religion does. It wraps chains around people. It shackles them. Now when I say that, I don't say that to mean that the idea of living a life holy for God has anything to do with religion. Has everything to do with a relationship with our Lord and Savior. But religion comes with preconceived ideas and rules and concepts and tries to, to clear this guy up. In fact, in ancient Uh, Egyptian scrolls, they had lengthy um, requirements for exorcisms, what they would do, the words to say, almost like uh, casting a spell, the the power to call upon in order to cast the demon out, all this stuff they had worked out. And I'm sure they came and ran through the whole deal. And tried to tie the guy up and tried to restrain him, but they could do nothing For his misery. So he spent his days. Every day. Running around in the tombs. And the mountain. Shrieking. And cutting himself with stones. The way they use the phrase. Cutting himself. We we probably all maybe have known someone. Or maybe somebody in our family. Who has been a cutter. A lot of times. uh, Young kids. Or kids in high school. Are. Uh, or people in a variety of different uh, um, stations in life get so uh, wrought with despair that they cut themselves. And you can ask them, what do you, why do you cut yourself? I don't know. But just, I just think that this is, this is something I need to do. I, I need to pay. There's something wrong with me that I feel this way. Or there's something wrong with me. That I go through these things. And if you look at them, they got scars everywhere. Scars everywhere. Every one of those scars, you know what they say? Help. I'm hurting. That's what they say. But we don't necessarily know what to do. In fact, sometimes when we, when we experience people that are struggling with that and going through that, we realize, man, this person is kind of a pain and they're hard to handle, so let's get some chains. Let's wrap them up. Maybe if we get them in chains and shackles, we can keep them from hurting themselves, but they break out. They're trapped in that place of misery, just like this guy. 
Think about where did he live? In the tombs. What living thing lives in the tombs? Well, nothing. So he's like the, the living dead. Not only is he, is he struggling in the physical realm living in the place of the dead, but he's also spiritually dead. He has no relationship with God, no hope of anything being better in his life. And nobody cares. And nobody's coming. Nobody's coming. Scripture tells us not only that, as if that's not enough, he's naked. That means he's been there long enough to wear out his clothes so he don't have no clothes. He's naked running around. In fact, Luke tells us in Luke 8, 27, it says, When he, Jesus, stepped on the land, there met him a certain man from the city who had demons for a long time, and he wore no clothes, nor did he live in a house, but in the tombs. So he's naked. He's miserable. He's a perfect picture of the spiritual condition of all mankind. We always think he's a picture of somebody else, not us. Oh, I know a guy like that. But I think he's a picture of us. Without Christ, that's us. You're without hope. You're without strength. In fact, Jesus, when he's writing seven letters to seven churches in the book of Revelation, he gives a warning to a church who was pretty sure they had it all together. They figured, hey, we got it. We're doing things. We're, we're, we're exactly where we want to be and what we want to be doing. And Jesus in Revelation 3.17 said this, Because you say, I am rich, I have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Jesus said to those people in Laodicea who were so sure they had it all together, He said, you don't really have it all together, and it's worse for you because you think you have it all together, and you don't know that you're just like the guy in the tombs. The Pharisees who stood before Jesus and were a picture of perfect religion, pretty on the outside, right? Saying all the right things, looking all the right ways, they have it all together. The perfect picture of religion, they're standing before Jesus and he says, You guys are whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones. You got it all together on the outside. But inside, you're like the dude in the tombs. You're just like him. (coughs) Clamoring for something and covering it up by keeping yourself together on the outside. Scripture tells us that he is demonized. <clears throat> Diamonazo. It's the same word you get from uh, agonasomai, the, the word for to contend, uh, which literally means to be filled with agony, to agonize. The same word for demon possession, demonize. And a lot of times when people come to the Bible, they think that the Bible... Remember last time we talked about the Bible is a historical record of the power of Jesus Christ. And they think they come to it and it's got all these crazy ideas. But you know, among all literature everywhere, the Bible's got it more together than anybody else. I, I, I'd go so far to say the Bible's got it more together than we got it together today. 
We can understand that when we, we consider this man, the biblical understanding of, of demons, and, and how a demon works, and what a demon accomplishes, is, is more complex than any other view anywhere else. If we want to understand it, just, just, just for a second, consider Matthew 4.24. Matthew 4.24 is about the sick coming to Jesus to be healed. And, and Matthew uses several descriptions. Look what he says. He doesn't just say the sick. In Matthew 4.24 he says, His fame went throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all sick people who were afflicted with various diseases, torments, those who were demon-possessed, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. When we look at the list of sick people, one of the categories is demon possession, but demon possession isn't blamed for it all. They were people who were demonized. Now those people who were demonized might be mute, they might be blind, but their issue was not muteness or blindness, it was a demon. A demon was their problem. But the scripture goes on to tell us, not only that, there were diseases. That's just your normal, basic, ordinary sickness. Okay, then you had torments, which is severe pain and suffering, which could be physical or mental. Severe pain and suffering. Then you had the concept of having a demon, being demonized. Then he talked about epileptics. And people come to this and they think, yeah, the word for an epileptic in the old days is the word lunatic. And the reason they called them lunatics was because they believed in the ancient world their seizures got worse at different times when the moon was full. Different parts of the, of the moon's, uh, as, as the moon went through its different phases, that their seizures would get worse. So they called them a, a lunatic. It didn't mean they were crazy. It meant that their, their malady, their suffering, was in some way reflected on the phases of the moon. Then they had paralytics. Paralytics covered somebody with palsy, or somebody who was not able to, to walk, or, or, or a paralyzed, just like we know of people today who were going through those things. So when the Bible lays out diseases, it don't blame it all on the devil. Sometimes your body's just broke. Sometimes when we sin and we go off the rails, the devil was nowhere near us. He is not required for you to do wrong. Wrong lives in you. It's called the flesh. Your sinful desires. Those things are inside of you at war with you continuously. So the Bible kind of lays out when it talks about demon possession, it talks about the sick, all these different categories. And while a demon may be a part of any of the categories at any specific time, the Bible differentiates. It just doesn't say they all have demons. It tells us the ones who really do. It's why... I think sometimes we look at the Bible today and we think, well, how come we don't see all this stuff today? We see all them same illnesses. Every single one of them you still see today. In the exact categories that the Bible lays them out in. Our inability to, to differentiate one between another 
is it not the fault of the Bible? Is it? It's interesting because when the disciples full of the Holy Spirit were out ministering, they recognized not everybody who was sick, but they recognized the people who had a demon. Paul was followed by a girl who kept shouting, he is a servant of the Most High God. And he turned around and cast a demon out of her. How do you know? He's full of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit told him. We are ill-equipped to walk as believers in this world if we're not full of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is what sets us apart. It's what makes the difference between the disciples before the resurrection of Christ and the disciples after. Before the resurrection, lots of problems, right? Knuckleheads. After the resurrection, especially, specifically after the day of Pentecost, you see men full of power. Power that makes them bold. Power that makes them strong. Power that gives them sight. So that they can see the things that are happening around them. Jesus has that. He comes to this place and this guy runs down to him, but... but He's full of a demon. We need to realize, we need to recognize the fact that you and I can be influenced by demons as well. Not possessed. Jesus told us a very clear story. He said the only way someone can can possess someone is if they take the strong man that's within them and bind them. If you're a believer, the strong man that's in you is Jesus. Nobody's binding him. So no demon possession. But that doesn't stop you from being demonically influenced, does it? Well, look with me. James chapter 3. Just real quick side note. We'll be right back to the story in a sec. James chapter 3 says this. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have, listen to this, bitter envy, self-seeking in your heart, Do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but it is earthly, sensual, demonic. Do you ever think about that? Do you ever had an attitude that was envious or self-seeking? James says that doesn't come from the Lord, that comes from here. And that those thoughts are demonic. The wisdom that is from above is first pure, peaceable, gentle, listen to this phrase, willing to yield. Do you hear that? Is that how you would describe yourself or you got your heels dug in? I will not change. I don't care what they say or what they want, they're wrong and I'm not ever going to stop. And the Bible says that wisdom doesn't come from God. Just so you know. Full of mercy, full of good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. The fruit of righteousness is sown in peace to those who make peace. So we can see that the influence, demonic influence, still in the world today. Still around, but this guy, this person that we've been talking about, he's the worst case ever. He's utterly uncontrollable. The word in the Greek means they couldn't tame him. It's like a wild animal gone amok that you can't stop. 
You can't change his direction. You can't. He is untamable. He's uncontrollable. <laughs> and he's in incredible torment. That means utter and complete severe pain. All day. Every day. So much so that he does two things all day. One is shriek. Cry out. Not using words, just crying out. And the second thing is cutting himself. Those are only two things he can do that gives him any alleviation from the pain. This is the guy. This is the one in the story. This is the guy who we're talking about. But then we see him meet Jesus. Look at verse 6. When he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and worshipped him. What? Well, remember I told you, he saw the guys get out of the boat and the, and the demon-possessed guy does what he normally does. Like, I'm going to run down there shrieking and screaming and yelling and, and uh, I'm going to get rid of those guys. So he comes shrieking and running and yelling and when he gets down there, it's Jesus. And when he sees Jesus, he's immediately to his knees. Immediately. The word is proskuneu. It means to bow down, to kiss, to kiss the hand or the foot, to drop flat on your face. So when it says he worshiped, it doesn't mean he began singing songs and lifting his hands. It means he went straight to his face. Why? Because the Bible says, if you know who Jesus is, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Jesus didn't have to tell him to do it. When he got in his presence, straight to his knees, flat on his face. Now that's kind of an incredible concept when we take a look and we realize, this is not just a dude, it is a guy with somewhere in the neighborhood of 6,000 demons inhabiting him. 6,000! Those who want to control his body, only find themselves in the presence of God able to be on their face. It says he ran to him. He came to him quickly. He fell on his face. <clears throat> and then the scripture tells us, they said, they cried out with a loud voice. Now that again is a shriek. So he comes running up. He sees, oh, it's Jesus. He falls on his face and shrieks. Just screaming. Probably the only time you hear the man's voice in whom reside 6,000 demons. Falls on his face, screaming. The scripture says, and he said, What have I to do with you, Jesus? They run up, they bow down, and basically he says, Hey, Jesus, I'm just here minding my own business. Why are you here? What have I to do with you? You ever wonder about the knowledge of the demons? I want you to look at what he calls him. Jesus, son of the most high God. That's a title used by Gentiles. They're not in Jewish land anymore. In fact, the Decapolis was much, much of the population in the Decapolis, the ten cities around the Sea of Galilee, was Gentile. Now there were, there were Jews there. There were Hellenistic Jews in in that place, but the phrase a Jew would never use most high God. 
How come a Jew wouldn't use Most High God? Because he already assumed God was Most High. Gentiles, when they talked about the Jewish God, would use the phrase, He is the Most High God, elevating Him above all the gods of the Gentiles. So it's interesting as he calls him out. He, he is calling him Jesus, Son of, that doesn't mean little born one. People struggle with this all the time. The Son of God, that phrase, Son of, does not mean the one born. Son of means the one who has all the characteristics of God Almighty. That's what he's saying. You are Jesus, God in the flesh, the most high God. This is what he's shouting. This is what he's saying to him. He knows, the demon knows who he is. And then it's interesting because he says to him, listen, I implore you. That's a word for beg, by the way. I beg you by God that you do not torment me. Now, isn't that kind of a strange thing to be saying? Well, look at the other, the other gospels shine some light on it. In Luke 8, 31, it says, And they begged him that he would not command them to go out into the abyss, the abuso. The abuso is a place in, in Revelation, it's called the bottomless pit. It uh, doesn't necessarily mean that there is a bottomless pit. It's a description of a place where angels have been um, captured and held in chains. In fact, the worst of the demons are held in the abuso. They're enchained in the abuso. Most scholars believe that that occurred somewhere around Genesis 6, just prior to the flood, that the demons were enchained. But at some point, they were enchained there. We know that when we read the book of Revelation, the scripture tells us that an angel comes down into the abuso. He has a key, and he opens it up, and he lets him out. The worst of the worst set loose out of the abuso. So here are these guys, these, these demons are saying, Lord, you're not going to send us to the abuso. You're not going to put us in chains, are you? They also say in Matthew 8, 29, suddenly they cried out and said, what do we have to do with you? <clears throat> uh, Jesus, you son of God, have you come here to torment us before the time? You understand what all those things mean? The demons know. They know their time is short. Scripture declares to us that Satan understands. He doesn't have forever. Their time is short. Short period of time. They're looking. Is this the time? Jesus, are you going to torment us? Is this the time when we get put into hell? Is this the time when, when you're gonna, we're going to enter into that Torment, and they're begging him from the face as this guy's laying on the ground, only able to shriek. And you hear the voices, the demonic horde speaking out of his body, saying, Is it the time for you to torment us now? It's not all that much different from the storm. It just happened a day previous, is it? Only this time the storm is occurring inside the soul of a man, instead of outside where the wind is blowing. In verse 8, it says, He said to him, Jesus said to him, Come out of the man, unclean spirit. And then he asked him, What is your name? And he answered and said, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly that he would not send him out of the country. Begs him, Don't, don't make us leave. Let us, let us stay in the area. 
Does that sound like like a, a being or a group of beings, 6,000 in number, that have control or power in any way, shape, or form beyond what God allows them to have? So they're crying out. They're, they're shrieking, is this the time? Is this the time? Jesus asked their name. A legion, the number of a legion went anywhere from six to 8,000, depending on who you check out. So you got a guy with six, it's crowded in him. 6,000 demons all wrecking his life. He didn't start that way, wasn't born that way. He got that way one step at a time. One poor choice after another, poor choice after another, poor choice, opening himself up over and over again until he's a crazy man in the tombs running around filled with demons. But Jesus goes out of his way to cross uh, the Sea of Galilee to calm a storm, rebuked it, remember, to get to this guy who as soon as Jesus hits the beach comes running up screaming and falls on his face. And he has a discussion with the demons. And he finds out that there are a number of them there. And they beg him and they plead, please, don't send us away from the Decapolis. Don't send us away from this place. In fact, they use <clears throat> the imperfect tense of the verb to plead, which means they continually were pleading, begging over and over again, please don't, please don't send us out. Please don't send us out. While Jesus is looking at this man's Broken, scarred, naked body laying on the ground before him. Somehow I just don't think he's filled with compassion for the demons. They beg and they plead and they cry that Jesus would, would allow them to do something kind of strange, right? Look at verse 11. Now a large herd of swine was feeding there near the mountains. So all the demons begged him, saying, Send us into the swine that we may enter them. That doesn't seem weird to you? It's a couple of weird things. And I don't want you to think that by the time I, I'm done talking, you'll understand it. Because <clears throat> I still don't get it. I don't understand why they want to embody something so bad. They don't have to embody something to be alive but they want to i know that the demon's goal is to make things harder on jesus not easier on him and i know that god's goal and whatever he allows a demon to do is to strengthen the believers that are in the area where that demon may function where he may work for example think about paul paul says that the lord sent to him a spirit to buffet his body, lest he become too proud and not be able to function the way that God wants him to be able to function. So he sent this, and, and Paul said, I prayed three times for this thorn in my flesh to be removed. And the Lord said, no. Your strength is made perfect, or my strength is made perfect in your weakness. So God allows, the things that He allows, He allows for the purpose of strengthening Paul's ability to be the man he needed to be. Without whatever that was in his life, we don't know, we can speculate till the pigs come home. It won't make any difference. 
You'll, you'll never know. You'll never have an answer. You'll never figure it out. Whatever makes you happy. But the point is, the demons, they're, they're constantly looking for a way to muck up the works. And whatever God allows, whatever God allows to occur, He allows to occur for the betterment of those around. So that they can be who they need to be. Suffering does not mean God doesn't love you. Suffering means He does. It means He does. It means He cares. It means He's working in you. He's bringing about endurance. And endurance is only learned through tribulation and trials. It's what the Word of God declares. <coughs> so they ask Him. They beg Him over and over and over and over again. So it's got to be a trippy thing. You, the disciples are all there. The crazy guy comes running down the street and falls down on his face. That's the last time we hear his voice. Then you hear the sound of all these demons begging Jesus to, to not torture him, not throw him into the abuso, let us go into the pigs. Over and over and over they're asking. They kept on asking and pleading them. So the scripture says, Jesus gave them permission. And the unclean spirits went out and entered the swine. There were 2,000. 2,000 pigs. Pigs are not sheep. If one pig runs off a hillside into the water to drown itself, the others don't follow. If it had been a big group of sheep, sheep might just be that dumb. The only thing maybe dumber than a sheep is a turkey. <laughs> right? I don't know how they got so smart when you hunting them is so hard, but, but when you got them in your yard, they're so dumb, they'll drown themselves while they're drinking water. I went out and my turkey's dead. What happened? He drowned himself taking a drink. Wow. See, you should look on the bright side. God called us sheep, not turkeys. It could have been worse. None, nonetheless, we have at least 2,000 demons inhabiting the pigs. Maybe there's three in each one. They all go out, get into the pigs, and the pigs immediately run headlong into the water, and drown themselves. And we don't know which one's responsible for it. We don't know if that was God. Saying, sure, go into pigs. And they go into pigs, and he throws them all in the water, and they drown, and now they're disembodied spirits. Some scholars think if they were disembodied spirits, they would go to the abuso. But there's nothing in the Bible that tells us that. Or it could just be the demons get in there and, and make the... The swine go crazy and they all run into the ocean and he's trying to make things harder for Jesus in the area. <clears throat> but I do have an idea why Jesus allowed it. 2,000 swine in a Gentile populated area, whether they're owned by Jews or Gentiles, is immaterial for as far as the story goes. It doesn't make any difference. They were probably being sold as meat to the Roman legions who were encamped all around the area and who would long to have something that reminded them more of home than what was available for them in Israel. So I'm sure that it was a way that people made a lot of money. And 2,000 animals all die. Do you think that hit somebody's pocketbook? I guarantee 2,000 dead pigs running down a mountain shrieking just like the guy had 
come up to Jesus on the ground. And I think what Jesus is declaring (coughs) to the people of that area and to you and I today is that one man's soul is worth more than 2,000 swine. One man's soul is worth more than however many thousands it might cost you to save it. One man's soul has incredible value. Well, look what happens. It says, so they they ran down violently and were drowned into the sea. Now we see the people of the area. So those who fed the swine fled. And they... And they told it in the city, in the country. And they went out to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the one who had been demon-possessed. And had had the legion sitting and clothed with his right mind. And they were afraid. That word should remind you of what happened at the storm. You remember the storm? Lord, don't you care? We're perishing. We're all about to die. The boat is almost full of water. And Jesus gets up and he says, Where's your faith? peace be still, quiet and stay quiet. And the storm stops and the, and the sea turns to glass. And you remember what it, how it described the disciples? And they were afraid. They were more afraid after he stopped the storm than they were of the storm. And the people in the city were more afraid after Jesus cast the demon out than they were when the man was demon possessed. Because it said something. Look, they had all these writings and all these ideas. This is how you do an exorcism. And you had to do all these crazy things and recite all these crazy words. Every culture has a concept of how to cast out a demon. Nobody ever just said, get out. And they got out. But Jesus... Because he's not like anybody else. Only God has that kind of power. Get out. They said, send us into the swine. He said, go. And they're gone. Swine run into the water and they drown themselves. Well, the guys, they run and they tell the town all about it. All about what was going on. They came to Jesus and they saw the one sitting there and they were afraid. Now this guy's clothed. I'm sure one of the disciples, I'm sure they had extra sets of clothes with them. They were just on a boat, remember? Storm. I'm sure they, I know I bring extra riches when I go out, especially in my boat. I never know when I might be swimming to get where I need to go. Anyhow. These guys, I'm sure, had an extra set of clothes, so they give the guy some clothes. They give him a cloak, and it's sitting there. What does the Word of God say? The Word of God tells that God has not given us a spirit of fear, but a spirit of power and of love and of self-control. And there that man sat in a sound mind, sitting before Jesus. Sitting before Him. It's an incredible story of a life radically transformed. There he was, naked, crazy guy running through the tombs. Here he is, seated, clothed in his right mind. One moment in time. One moment with Jesus Christ. Radical transformation of life. That is the greatest power in all the universe. 
that Jesus has the power to radically transform a life from that to what was sitting at the feet of Jesus. And He does that same work in your life and mine when we come to faith in Him. He cleanses us and He makes us whole. He said, And those who saw it told them how it had happened to Him who had been demon-possessed and about the swine. And they began to plead with Him to depart from their region. All the people around, after the loss of their money, all they could think about was begging Jesus to leave. They didn't demand He left because He just showed them power. They could not even begin to comprehend. So they pleaded just like the demons. Leave. Won't you please leave? Really uncomfortable what you hear. Really, I, I really don't feel very comfortable. Could you go? Would you just leave? When we look at this story, the demons plead with Jesus and He says yes to them. The townspeople plead with Jesus. Won't you leave? Won't you get out of here? And He says yes to them. He only says no to one guy. Do you ever wonder about that? Here's what the scripture tells us. It says in verse 18, And when he got into the boat, he who had been demon-possessed begged him that he might be with him. The guy who had been demon-possessed, his life radically transformed, comes to Jesus, please, just let me be with you. I don't know what's wrong with all these other people, but I want to be with you where you are. I want to be in that place. I want to be with you. I want to be in that, let me come, let me come, please, let me come. Just like everybody else. The demons pleaded, and the people of the town pleaded. But the one who belonged to Jesus is the only one Jesus said no. You don't get to come with me right now. You know, it's kind of the same thing that the disciples were thinking when they looked at Jesus as He ascended into heaven. You don't think the disciples, after they saw Jesus all that time, they thought He was dead, there He is, He's resurrected. Now they're watching Him float up into the heavens and the angels are singing. You don't think they're saying, Lord, take me. I don't want to be here. I want to be where you are. I want to be where you're at. I want to be where I can look into your eyes and I can feel your touch and I can hear your words. I want to be with you. But Jesus said the same thing to them. He said the same thing. He said, Go, therefore, every nation, and baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And teach them the things that I have taught you. And know this. Even though I'm leaving, I will be with you forever. Don't you hear the same thing with this guy? He belongs to Jesus. His life is radically transformed. Look, if you belong to Jesus, your life has been radically transformed. If your life is not transformed, you're not with Him. You cannot be with Jesus and not be changed. I would say, show me. Give me an example. In the scripture, work our way through scripture. Find one life that wasn't changed. One life that stayed in the muck and the mire and, and nothing ever happened for him. When we come to Jesus, our lives change. This guy, he believes. 
He never said a prayer. Hadn't been baptized. But he belongs to Jesus and he begs and he pleads, Lord, let me come with you. And look what Jesus says. Go home. How long do you think it's been since he's been there? Long time? Think there's anybody there who still cares about him? Anybody here got a prodigal son or a prodigal daughter? Who's out in the world running wild and free, crazy someplace? You still care about them? Well, what about if they're in prison or, or jail or they've done horrible things? You still care about them? I guarantee. I will sit on my porch looking for my prodigal to return until the day I die. And I don't care what he's done, what he's going to do. When he comes home, he is welcome. And so was this guy when he went home. When he got home, there was somebody sitting on the porch, throwing his arms out wide. Thinking, oh my gosh, what happened to you? Look at you. Man, that had to be awesome. The feelings, the emotions that were going... He said, go home. What's the next thing he told him? Go home to your friends and tell them what God has done for you. Go and tell what God has done for you. It's no different than what God told the disciples at the ascension. It's no different than what God told this man whose life was radically transformed. He went out of his way to touch a man and nobody cared about. He was just garbage. He's thrown out in the tomb. People are just waiting for him to die. But the God of the universe put on flesh for that day so he could get in that boat, so he could stop that storm, so he could go to that guy, so he could cast out those demons and set him free that's the same God who calls your name same God who calls my name same God willing to do all those things for a man nobody cared about is still willing to do all those things for you but don't think when you turn around to him you say well God will you do this and God says no that it's because he doesn't love you It's precisely because he does love you that he says, no, go. He looks into that man's eyes and he says, in essence, you and I, we're going to be together forever. And when we're in eternity, you're not even going to remember all this stuff down here. It's going to be such a a, a distant memory. But until that time, every day people are dying. Your friends are going to die. And they just threw me out. I don't get to go talk to them. So I send you. Go and tell. Go home. Go to your friends. Tell them your God story. Tell them what God has done in you. None of us are theologians. Not even theologians are theologians. Do you know that? Here's what happens. You go to school for like nine years. You get a doctorate. 
They say, now you have an MDiv, you're a master of divinity, you can speak uh, <coughs> Greek and Hebrew, you can do all that stuff. You have paid somewhere in the neighborhood of $30,000 a year for nine years. Just so you can have the right to say, I don't know. <laughs> if you guys don't mind, I'm going to keep the $270,000 and be okay with saying, I don't know. What we discover the deeper we go in understanding and in theology is that it does not give us the answers to the questions there aren't answers to. Hopefully we just know enough after giving, shilling out all that money you know enough to be able to say I have currently been educated beyond my ability to understand. <laughs> and don't get me wrong, I'm not against education. I'm a big supporter Bible college is awesome. There's great things. But there's a point where, yeah, going past this is just crazy. It's time to go. I don't have to know all the answers. What you have that nobody else has is your story of what God means to you. What God's done in your life. How God's spoken to you. How God's moved in your life. What you were without God and who you are with God today. That you have. Nobody can take those things away from you. Those are all yours. So look what this guy does. It says, Go tell the people what great things the Lord has done for you and how He has had compassion on you. So he departed and began to proclaim. I like that they use that word, proclaim. You know how else they translate that word? Preach. He went out and began to preach. What did he preach? What God had done for him and how much God loved him. That's the message. Can we all handle that? What God has done for me and how much God loves me? I don't need a degree to do that, do I? I think I got that. I think we can get that part down. So what's he say? Go and tell. So he departed and began to proclaim in Decapolis. That's the ten cities all around the Sea of Galilee. All that Jesus had done for him. And what happened? Everybody marveled. <laughs> Sometimes people are just blown away at the change of life. Sometimes they're just marveled because I don't know why. Hopefully, they didn't just stop at being marveled. Wow, that's a great story. Wow, that's an incredible idea. Hopefully, they came so far as to say, you know, I think next time Jesus comes around here, we're going to invite him in. And I believe, because of this guy's work, they did. Same message, radical transformed life, because Jesus Christ is not just Lord of the storm and the things that are happening outside. But he's Lord of the soul, the things that are happening on the inside. And into that storm, he wants to speak, peace be still. And bring his peace and calm, transform your life. But not just so that you can be happy. He wants to transform your life so that you will go. 
Sometimes he calls us across the ocean. Sometimes he calls us across the street. But he calls us all. Go therefore and tell. Amen? Amen. Why don't you stand with me and let's pray.